Thank you for sharing with us. It's great to see God is still using young people and developing young people to serve him in different ways. At this time, if the kids want to be dismissed to Children's Church, uh, you'll see the workers over there ready to take them out. Uh, I do want to begin just with uh, a hearty thank you uh, for your generosity. I consider myself incredibly blessed to be a part of an incredible church. And while we are very grateful for your generosity, not only to me, but to the pastoral staff as well. I want to make clear that the greatest gift that you could ever give to any pastor is not monetary. Someone recently asked what I wanted for pastor appreciation, and my response was, I just wanted to see people in our church become all that God intends them to be. I want to know that what I'm doing is helping people in that process. The Apostle Paul regularly thanked God for the people in his care. In Romans 1.8, he says, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. And in 1 Corinthians 1.4, he says, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus. And in Philippians 1, verses 3 through 5, we read, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And in one more in Colossians 1.3 says, we give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. I could obviously go on and on, but you get the point. The greatest gift that you could ever give to a pastor is to respond to the teaching of Jesus Christ, to become all that God intended you to be, and simply the knowledge that our lives, the pastoral staff, and the ministry that we are involved with is making a difference. So I do say thank you very, very much, but what I really want to see is this church continue to grow to be all that God would call us to be. Well, I have one primary verse that I want to share with you this morning. I will look at a couple other verses as well. Uh, this comes from Proverbs chapter 29, verse 18. So if you want to turn in your Bibles to it, you can. It is a familiar uh, verse of Scripture. It's one that we have uh, looked at previously, although it's been a long time. I will tell you that I'm going to read from the King James Version today. I don't always do that, but that's the way I learned this verse. In Proverbs chapter 29, Verse 18, it says this, where there is no vision, the people perish, but he that keepeth the law, happy is he. Where there is no vision, the people will perish. Other translations say that people will have no restraint or will be discouraged. The idea is that without vision, nothing good will come of it or of us. We will squander all of our efforts, our opportunities, our energies. We spend a whole lot of time spinning our wheels, yet we will go nowhere. An example of this is the one who realizes the need to lose weight, yet there's no specific plan or goal. Let me just say that when, when you start off with something like that, you actually have to begin by making sure you're not making eye contact with anybody. Because the moment you do, someone's going to think, oh, he's talking to me. I'm not. 
But what happens so often is individuals set out to lose weight, but they have no specific plan or goal. So what they do is they eat a little bit less for a time. But since there's no specific goal or vision, they will likely go back to their old eating habits in a few weeks or hours. A biblical example of this is seen in the Israelites as they wandered through the desert for years. They really didn't have a destination in sight. Sure, they were on, to the, on their way to the promised land. There was sort of a goal, but the truth is they're completely lost. From the moment that they started this journey to the day that they crossed the Jordan into the promised land, their path looked like the world's biggest pretzel. They were all over the place because they had no idea where to go except to follow whenever the Lord would lead. Problem is, they had already been to the promised land, but they really weren't ready to take the promised land. So instead, God says, I will allow this generation to die out. During that time, they struggled without having a clear goal. They struggled with complaining, insurrection, and even the desire to just give up and return to Egypt. Contrast that with the New Testament examples of people like Paul. He experienced incredible oppression and abuse. Yet in Philippians 3, he would declare that not that I have already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Contrast the two. You've got the people of Israel wandering, and as they wander, they complain. Difficult things come their way, and there's a reason for us to go back to where we were before. We're hungry. We don't have a place to lay our heads. Let's just go back to Egypt. At least there we had a place to sleep and we had food on our table. But had they gone back to Egypt, they never would have achieved what God laid out for them. The Apostle Paul, on the other hand, is singularly focused. Even when the rest of the world is crashing in on him, he still has a mission that he would not be willing to yield on. And that's what God desires for you and me. God never intended for his people to wander aimlessly. So I'm going to share with you a little this morning regarding God's vision for us as a church. Some of this you may be quite familiar with already. Some of this might be somewhat new to you. But all of it is perfectly in line with the word of God. A key verse that we've often used here at Trinity comes from Micah chapter 6, verse 8. It is a beautiful verse that lays out God's plan for all those who are in Him. It even clearly defines God's expectations on us. One humorous story with this particular verse. Uh, last year when we decided as a softball team to get new jerseys, uh, we decided that we wanted Micah 6 8, just the verse reference on the back of it. And the first few jerseys ended up with Micah 6 8. And then from that moment forward, it was Micah 6 9, 6 10, 6 11, all the way to 6 22. 
By the way, there are only 14 verses in Micah chapter 6. It was rather humorous when you had individuals, I won't name names, but one of them ended up with a verse that says, you shall eat and never be satisfied. I thought, man, that is perfect. <laughs> Micah 6.8 is an incredible verse that very clearly defines what God expects of his people. Listen to the word of the Lord as found in Micah 6.8. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Of course, when I've quoted this verse so often before, I start with the second line where we're asking the question, and what does the Lord require of you? But there is something incredibly important in that first line. You see, this verse begins with a recognition of who you are. You need to know who you are. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. Now, maybe this sounds too simple for you today, but maybe someone sitting beside you, it is not. But it is important for us to realize that we are mere mortals. We live in a culture that has elevated man to the point that we almost think of ourselves as being like God. We're intelligent. We can do things that previous generations would have considered to be impossible. Through technology and machines, we can prolong life and maybe even create life. And many of us even think that we know better than the real God, wanting to do things our way as opposed to his way. But all of our advances in technology and information do not change the fact that we are still mortal. We all will one day die unless the Lord chooses to come back sooner. And though we may have more resources at our fingertips than any generation prior to us, none of that will change the fact that there will come a day when every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So who we are is simple. We are mere mortals, yet there is one who is immortal. And the beauty for us is that we as children of God now belong to him. He is the one who has created us. He is the one who has incredibly high expectations for us. And he is the one who will eventually demand an accounting of us. I told you that you need to know who you are. Well, you also need to know whose you are. I imagine that most of you have seen the Disney Pixar cartoon movie series entitled Toy Story. There are at least four installments of that particular movie series. It's possible that by now there's five or six, who knows. The stories chronicle the adventures of a boy named Andy, along with all of his favorite toys. And each time a new toy is added to the collection, that toy is marked. On each one, Andy writes his name to identify that they now belong to him. In a similar manner, when you become a child of God, God 
marks you. But instead of writing his name on the bottom of your foot as he did with his toys, God sends his spirit to dwell in you. I remember one of the greatest hymns of the church was entitled, Now I Belong to Jesus. Listen to the lyrics. Jesus, my Lord, will love me forever. From him no power of evil can sever. He gave his life to ransom my soul. Now I belong to him. Now I belong to Jesus. Jesus belongs to me. Not for the years of time alone, but for eternity. The point is that I now belong to Jesus Christ. That means that he has authority over me. When I speak, it ought to be in accordance with his will. When I work, it ought to be in accordance with his will. When I vote, it ought to be in accordance with his will. When I do anything, it ought to be in accordance with his will. You see, I belong to him. That means he's the one who's in charge, not me. So how do I know what God's will is? How do we know what he expects of us? Fortunately for us, we find that answer here in this verse in Micah chapter 6, verse 8. And while this carries with it a corporate answer, talking about the entire body of Christ, there is also a personal application for each of us. Let's look at it. And what does the Lord require of you? The first of three answers is that we must act justly. This application is similar uh, as a the, the application is similar as a combined body of Christ or for the individual. God is calling us to act justly, in other words, to do what is right. According to the Old Testament law, God's word is the only thing that could determine what acting justly really meant. In Exodus chapter 20, for example, we see a list of 10 commandments that the people of God were expected to live in accordance with. That meant that even if other nations said that something was okay, God's word had already determined what was right or wrong. It didn't matter what everybody else said. What mattered was what God's word said. That meant that even if other members of God's people, other Israelites, started redefining right and wrong, God's word had already determined what acting justly would really look like. People have asked me throughout the years why I am a Wesleyan. Some of you are thinking, what's a Wesleyan? I just go to this church because I like the people here or whatever. Truth is, the Wesleyan church has several things that make me want to be a Wesley. The first is related to the heritage of our church which I'll talk about in just a moment. But the second is the holiness of God that the Wesleyan Church should have, that our beliefs and practices say we should have. The Wesleyan Church is one of about seven denominations that are considered holiness churches. Most of them are quite small, although we might be somewhat familiar with the largest of these, which is the Salvation Army. We think of them as the ones who raise money around Christmas time, but the truth is they're actually one of the holiness churches. The idea behind a holiness church is that we believe that God has called us to do many things, 
but they are all centered around his holiness in us. The result is that we ought to act justly. We choose to abstain from things that other people might participate in. We choose to do things that other people would avoid doing. In other words, we live up to a higher standard, not because we are superior to anyone else, but because we long to please God above all else. So we act justly. I will add that there are some keys to this that are very important for us. The first is the infilling of the Holy Spirit. Did you know that as Wesleyans, we believe that the Holy Spirit is given to anyone who would receive it, who has repented of their sins? We call it the second work of grace. When the Holy Spirit comes upon an individual, there is no way that I can simply become good enough to be called holy. But God can absolutely transform my heart, my mind, and my actions so that they do reflect the holiness of God, and that is through the infilling of his Holy Spirit. But the second key is discipleship. We are called to be disciples. And as a disciple of Jesus Christ, I must always seek to know him more and to be transformed more and more into his likeness. The motto of our church has been making disciples who will make a difference. Well, if we truly want to be a holiness church that acts justly, we must be committed to becoming better disciples. And don't sit back and wait for someone to hold your hand through discipleship. Be determined that even if you are the only one you will not be satisfied with anything less than an intimate discipleship relationship with Jesus Christ. That is what needs to take place if we're genuinely going to act justly, if you're genuinely going to do what's right. I will say that good and evil has been redefined in our culture. And there are even those inside the Christian church who have called certain things good when Scripture actually calls it evil. Unfortunately, we see that more and more in our culture, and I hate to tell you this, but it's probably not going to change anytime real soon. In fact, if anything, it's probably going to expand. We'll see more and more of it, and we need to decide now that we will not be okay with redefining good and evil. We must act justly, not justly in a way that someone out there would say, oh, now that's justice, but rather in a way that God would look and say, that is the justice that I require of my people. The second key is discipleship. I just mentioned it already. We need to make sure that we are becoming the disciples God called us to be. If you are not yet in a discipleship relationship, I want to challenge you today to begin that process. If you need me to be the one to disciple you, I will be the one to disciple you. If you need to grab one of these other individuals that have been in the body of Christ for a long time, whom you would look at with great respect and honor, if you want to grab one of them and say, hey, I need to be discipled, will you walk with me through this? Then go grab them today and talk to them, ask them, invite them to participate in this relationship with you. If you can't find anybody that you want to disciple you, at least begin by getting into God's word and allowing his word to speak to who you are. You cannot expect to become a disciple, yet do nothing to make it happen. 
Again, go back to the image of someone trying to lose weight. I'm going to lose weight. Are those Krispy Kreme donuts? Just because you say you're going to lose weight doesn't mean you're going to lose weight. You've got to make a decision to do something different. And the same thing is true about us becoming disciples. By the way, I use that illustration because someone brought Krispy Kreme donuts to my house last night, and it has been a stumbling block to me all night. So just wanted to share that with you. (laughs) So back to our question. What does the Lord require of you? The second answer is for us to love mercy. Please note that this is not an option. Actually, none of these three are optional. Instead, God requires it. But of course, the application of this is incredibly diverse. It can apply to those who have done hurtful things to you. It can apply to those who find themselves in bad situations. It can even apply to those who are victims of another person's actions. I told you earlier that there are two things in particular that cause me to want to be a Wesleyan. Obviously, one is I love the idea of us being a holiness church. But the other thing that really makes me love the Wesleyan Church is our heritage. We have a great heritage of loving mercy. When we've seen injustices taking place, us not being okay with leaving it like that. Us not being okay with just saying, you know what, I'll pray for you. But us wanting to do something about it. To reach into people's lives and to truly show them what it means to love mercy. Wesleyan Church was one of the most influential uh, organizations in the fight against slavery many years ago. You wouldn't know that today because very rarely do we talk about it. The truth is the Wesleyan Church has always been about loving mercy. Now the phrase love mercy in this passage is actually only one word in the original Hebrew language. The Hebrew word is hesed, which is literally translated God's steadfast love. Now, maybe you wonder how we got from God's steadfast love to love mercy. I want you to think about this for just a moment. The foundation of God's steadfast love is mercy. I know that there are times that his judgment and his wrath are necessary, but God would prefer to extend mercy and grace always. And when we begin to truly grab hold of his steadfast love, mercy should be what flows out of us. I would suggest to you that it is this mercy that calls us to continue reaching out to the lost within our community. We look around and we see the perpetual brokenness. We see the division. We see the increase of immorality. And we know that the only hope for this community and for this world is Jesus Christ. It is his mercy that spurs us on to reach the lost. And I suggest to you today that this church, while we want to make disciples, we want the people who are here in this place to become all that God would have us be. We are still not completing the job if we are not also reaching into a dying world that needs Jesus Christ. This leads to our final answer to this question. What does the Lord require of you? 
The final answer is that we must walk humbly with our God. As we are being discipled, as we begin to look at the brokenness of our world through the eyes of Jesus Christ, we need to be willing to follow his lead. And where he leads, we must, must be willing to follow. During our prayer time earlier, I specifically referenced the fact that it's not God's will that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So what do you think he wants to see happen? Well, based on that, he wants the lost, the broken, those who have been defeated by sin, the condemned. He wants to see redemption take place in them. Now, part of this is evangelism. I I think you guys get where I'm going with this. We need to be disciples. He desires that for us. He wants us to be people who will reach into the lives of others. And I'm going to tell you that's a really nice principle. But we need to be actively pursuing that. Pursuing Christ, getting to know him. And then how can I reach into the lives of other people so that I can share Christ with them? I'll tell you, I've had the opportunity this week to share Christ on at least three separate occasions, and it has been an incredible blessing to do so. I regret to inform you that none of those three individuals have given their hearts to Christ. There were actually four individuals because at one moment there were two individuals present. But here's the point. If you're not out there sharing the good news of Christ, the odds of individuals actually responding to the message of Christ go down significantly. It's kind of like when you ask someone to go out on a date. If you never get around to asking, there's a pretty good chance that the answer is no. But there is the possibility, the moment you ask, that they might say yes. What happens when we share the good news of Jesus Christ? I'm going to tell you, every one of us ought to be ready to share our story of God's redemption. The church has become so... The church has become so well known for what we stand against as opposed to us being ready to tell what we stand for, how God has moved in us. And it is time for us to make sure that the world knows who we are, not who we are not. It is time for the world to look at us and know that these people have been set apart by God because God has moved in their lives. They've been redeemed. They've been set free. They are being made new. And it is time for us to tell that story. Yes, there are things we stand against. There are things that we are not okay with. Homosexuality, according to the scripture, is sin. Yes, we do stand against it. Abortion is wrong. It is murder. We are not okay with it. But I want to be known for who I am in Christ Jesus. For the redemption and the hope that he has granted to me. I will confess that one of the things that concerns me most is that I don't see the church, and I would even take a step further and say that I don't see the Wesleyan church continuing down a path of holiness, and it scares me. I gave you my two reasons. I love our heritage. The heritage is there. That's not going anywhere. I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful that we have a church that has a great history. But my fear is that as a church, we are wandering away from holiness. The only way to fight that begins here with us. Us being the people that God called us to be. 
us making sure that we are not going to compromise. And even if everyone else does, we will not. That doesn't happen randomly. You've got to make a choice. I believe that God has called Trinity Wesleyan Church, first of all, for us to be the holy people that he called us to be, to act justly, to love mercy, reaching into the lives of those who are broken, and being willing to do whatever God would lead us, even if nobody else wants to do it. My question to you today is, will you allow God to move in your life? I'm going to give you some opportunities to put some of this into practice. First of all, I want to challenge you if I already did just briefly, but if you are not yet a disciple of Christ, you say, well, I am a believer, I'm a Christian, and I celebrate that. I thank you for your commitment to him, but God wants you to be a disciple. So if you are not yet a disciple of Jesus Christ, I'm going to ask you today to make a commitment that you will never, ever be satisfied with less than his best for you. Maybe for you it begins with committing today. I'm going to spend time in God's word every single day. Doesn't mean you have to read the entire Bible in the next three months. We did a class here where it was uh, reading through the Bible in 90 days. And it was great. That's not what I'm calling you to at this point. I just want you in the Bible. It's God's word. It reveals his heart. It reveals what he has for you, what he desires for you. So begin there. Maybe you do need to come in contact with someone who will push you, who will encourage you in your walk with Christ. One who will ask you some of the more difficult questions. I still have an accountability partner that I had in college. We still call each other just to check on each other and to make sure that we're growing spiritually. I've been out of college now for 26 years. The point is that I'm still not satisfied with where I'm at. I don't care how old you are. You need to become a disciple of Jesus Christ. If you're not sharing your faith with someone, I also want to challenge you. Begin that process. Maybe you need to start simple. Maybe for the entire month of November, what we'll do is we'll, we'll encourage people to bring someone to church with them. And just inviting them to church is a great first step. But at some point, I want to encourage you to share your story. Tell them who you are. Tell them why you are who you are. There was a day that I was stuck in sin and I didn't realize that there was a way out, but Jesus Christ showed me a way out. And because of that, today I am redeemed, I have a hope, I have a promise, and I am no longer enslaved by the things that had a hold of me. Maybe what you need to do is write down your story today so that when that time comes, it'll be easier for you to share it. Decide today that even if other churches do not stand the way that God's word calls us to stand, that you will be faithful. If you would bow your heads and close your eyes with me. Father, as we come before you, Lord, we do thank you for your grace. Thank you for the forgiveness of sins that you've granted to us. Lord, none of us deserves to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. We are not good enough. We know that. But by the infilling of your Holy Spirit, you have made a way for us to be redeemed, a way for us to be transformed, a way for us to be changed. We know that there is a drift that appears to be happening in our culture. 
It's been going on for decades. We've looked at the world and it seems like every generation is a little more immoral than the one before. And the things that we used to look at and think, man, there is no place for that. It does not belong in our country. It has become so normal that you expect it today. For a long time, we felt somewhat insulated from it within the church. But we recognize today that such things are now invading the church. Lord, I pray today that you would once again restore your people to holiness. That you would call us to truly act justly. To do what's right, not because someone else said it's right, but in a way that says, we know our God is watching. And we want to act justly according to what he expects. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to love mercy Help us to see the brokenness of our world through your eyes. To recognize that where there is sin, there is pain. There is regret. But there is often grace. Lord, I pray that you would allow us to see the brokenness of people around us and to not be okay just passing by. Help us to show them that there is a way out. Help us to know what to say and when to speak and when not to speak and when to just sit silently. Lord, I pray today that you would make us a people who are not okay leaving our world in sin. Finally, I pray, Lord, that you would make us so devoted to you that we would be willing to walk humbly with our God wherever you would lead us. Lord, even if everyone else turns their back on you, make us fully devoted to you. Father, we give you praise for who you are. Make us the church that you intended us to be. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I will tell you that my heart is that God would continue to use Trinity Wesleyan Church over the next year, however long, until the Lord returns. My prayer is that God would use us to call the church to holiness, but it has to begin here. Let us be a church that will act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with our God. Thank you for being with us this morning. Again, come back next week to join us for our homecoming services. And if you would, go in peace.